0: Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. For decades, Australia's security and economic policy has been developed based on an established regional order coming out of World War II. But we are now in turbulent times. Strong personalities and strained tensions mean a change in the balance of power in the Asian region. Here to discuss the current geopolitical climate and how Australia should react is Gareth Evans, former politician and cabinet minister during the Hawke and Keating governments and foreign minister from 1988 to 1996. He's currently the chancellor of the Australian National University. Thank you for joining me Gareth. Good morning Matt. happy to join you. So when you look at the current state of Asia, what's your take on the geopolitical climate at the moment? Are you encouraged? Are you worried? Are you hesitant? What's your take on things?
1: Well, there's obviously been some very dramatic changes which have posed challenges for every country in the region, including Australia. They include China's manifest new assertiveness in the conduct of its geopolitical relations, very different from the Deng Xiaoping prescription of uh, biding time and hiding strength. You've got, parallel with that, the effective abdication of United States authority, presence, role, responsibility, and all the vagaries and uncertainties associated with the Trump presidency. You've got North Korea's acquisition of nuclear capability and the stresses that places on how to respond to that. You've got India's emergence uh, mm. in a positive way, uh, hopefully, at last, after many years of, of quiescence, um, adding a new dimension, hopefully a an overall net positive one to the regional environment. Uh, but you've also got in Southeast Asia, a decline in the credibility and coherence of the ASEAN bloc. You've got individual countries still with plenty of weight and plenty of capacity uh, for playing a stabilizing role in the region, Indonesia and Vietnam in particular. But ASEAN as a whole is uh, obviously going through a pretty stressful period with um, several of its members effectively wholly owned subsidiaries of China and mm-hmm. um, human rights and democracy issues in a number of countries uh, giving, you know momentum to growing concern around the place that, that ASEAN is, is perhaps no longer uh, quite what it was in terms of a, a bastion of, uh, of peace and stability and, and coherence in the region. So when you put all those things together, it does uh, it does amount, as I said, to a challenging environment. I don't think it's a particularly threatening one in terms of a likely outbreak of violent conflict. I think uh, the world has learnt a lot and policymakers, decision makers have learnt a lot from the catastrophes and tragedies of the of the 20th century, and nobody but nobody um, is rushing off to engage in any kind of national aggrandizement by violent means. But that doesn't mean things can't happen uh, in a volatile and sensitive environment, and miscalculations and misjudgments uh, can be made. So all of us have got to work on the, the basis of, of that new reality. And uh,
0: it does uh, make for some quite interesting times. Mm. Oh, I was wondering if you could, uh, in some ways, compare it to the situation when you were foreign minister. Is it, has it been a gradual change to that process? or Because it seems like there's been a lot of change within the last couple of years in particular, or is that just... Well, I was foreign deception. minister at
1: an extraordinary time, at the end of the Cold War. Mm. It was 88 to 96, when there was a huge amount of optimism, not only in the Euro-Atlantic uh, theatre with America and... Soviet Union than Russia, but um, certainly in our own region there was a sense that um, all things were were possible and you'll remember that the biggest intractable conflict of our region at the time was the Cambodian situation which was still in a situation of effective civil war following the Khmer Rouge genocide and all that went with that. Mm. And yet that was a period in which we were able to bring together the major players regionally, globally, and forge a peace settlement. didn't do much for democracy or human rights in Cambodia, as we now know, but certainly it produced peace. And there was a tremendous atmosphere of uh, positive, constructive um, enthusiasm. China at that stage was still um, hardly a backwater, but um, economically growing very rapidly but not sort of omnipresent in our calculations the way it is today Japan was still the the really big boy on the block economically even though it uh, didn't have much of a sort of geopolitical presence uh United States was obviously omnipresent in terms of its economic and military clout and essentially a, a stabilizing role that it was playing so and ASEAN was showing you know plenty of, of promise as a vehicle for not only internal stability, which it has continued uh, to be, you know, a force for peace, obviously, in the same way as the European Union. It's very difficult to imagine any ASEAN country you know, going to war with each other, but there was was more than that with ASEAN. And it was ASEAN as an engine for wider regional cooperation, both mm. uh, economically and militarily. ASEAN as the the centre of the uh, the creation of APEC, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. ASEAN as the centre of the ASEAN Regional Forum, which was the first big you know, security dialogue body we developed. All of those things, Australia was very actively involved in creating and working very closely with colleagues right across the region. It was a time of enormous optimism, a time of enormous hope, and a time of uh, a real achievement in terms of, of getting things done. I'm not saying that things have gone to hell in a handbasket since then. That would be excessively pessimistic or excessively gloomy. All it's obvious um, to say is that um, you know China has come out of its shell, and um, particularly in terms of its position in the South China Sea, which is the most worrying single aspect of um, China's sort of uh, growing assertiveness. That has changed the overall dynamic and made an awful lot of people... Uh, wonder, you know, just how stable things are going to be for the foreseeable future by comparison with the very optimistic atmosphere we had back then.
0: Mm-hmm. Trump's United States seem to be very disruptive in the region at the moment, if I can use that word. I'm a little bit surprised that he hasn't waded into the South China Sea situation. How do you see America's influence changing and what do you think that holds for the future? Is it just going to create a void or do you think it's going to become more antagonistic Or do you think that there's going to be peace? Well, I mean, America's position under Trump has
1: been incredibly uh, disruptive, incredibly challenging for everyone else, mainly because we haven't really got a sense of any kind of consistency in the way in which he approaches uh, these issues. He treats his allies essentially as encumbrances rather than assets, very sceptical, as in europe of whatever we do to uh, to contribute to wider peace and stability uh, economically his um, you know crusade to go to trade war with china is incredibly destabilizing and troubling to all of us his plunge into north korea and the resolution of the nuclear situation is you know by contrast something that's entirely positive if it works in the sense that I think previous US administrations were far too reluctant to engage directly with the North Koreans and try to find a way through mm. that problem. But of course Trump is so erratic, he's so little in command of the you know, basic understanding of the, the history, the dynamics, he's so little willing to accept uh, credible professional advice, his personality is so uh, volatile and narcissistic and his capacity to engage in any kind of consistent behavior for any period of time is such that it'll be an absolute miracle, I think, if the North Korea situation unfolds uh, in the the positive way we hope it will, in which President Moon of South Korea has been contributing hugely to to trying to achieve. Uh, In the South China Sea, I mean, um, American officials are obviously very worried about the implications of China rejecting Uh, the decision of the Permanent Court of Arbitration in terms of its description of how you can make sovereignty claims in that area and making it very clear that China had no claim credibly at all to uh, sort of regard itself as the the sovereign owner of of the South China Sea, although it might have credible claims to particular islands and so on within it. That decision also made it extremely clear that um, China couldn't possibly claim sovereignty over the particular islets or rocks or reefs on which it has built these now militarized installations, that they're just not susceptible to sovereignty claims by anyone. They're not mm. susceptible to exclusion of the waters around them. And um, they're certainly not able at international law to be uh, militarized in any way. China's thumbing its nose at all those constraints in a way that is is troubling, as I said, policymakers in the United States, but um, and it's resulting in the Americans running these freedom of navigation operations and so on to demonstrate that um, those sovereignty claims to the waters around these spics and specs are not accepted. But whether Trump himself is at all engaged in this, whether he understands the nature of the issues involved or whether he even cares, remains to be seen. I mean, he just doesn't really seem to focus on the larger geostrategic issues in any consistent or intelligent way. And it makes it very difficult under those circumstances to work out a credible policy which is not confronting or threatening to China, which recognizes the reality of China's new and very major role in the region and the world, but at the same time does draw some lines about unacceptable overreach, whether Trump is capable of navigating that kind of fairly subtle course, um, remains completely to be seen, and all the evidence is
0: that he's completely incapable of it. Mm. So therein lies
1: a problem for all of us.
0: So uh, what I see now is uh, that there's a bit of a a void in the region that China is making the most of as a result of the US behavior. But this is something that China was probably moving towards anyway, because their activity in the South China Sea has been going on for quite a while. Their One Belt, One Road plans have been underway for quite a while. And this is just helping them along. And I read an article recently about banners going up in the Philippines uh, jokingly saying that it's a new province of China with the amount of Chinese money that's being pumped into the Philippines at the moment.
1: Look, there's a lot that's perfectly understandable and perfectly acceptable about China's behavior. It is a massively rising power, which is entitled to its economic space, it's entitled to its strategic and military space, mm. it's entitled to protect its sea lanes, it's entitled to develop a blue water navy, it's entitled to have a presence in the Indian Ocean, it's entitled to have a presence in the South China Sea in a way that has been utterly uncontroversial you know, for other major powers in the past, not least the United States. The Belt and Road Initiative, although it's jangled a few nerves around the place because of the alleged geostrategically threatening character of it. And you know creating a whole bunch of client states and I think a lot of that concern is is very much overstated there's a lot to be said in favor of greater transparency and better governance of those um, massive set of projects but um, the notion there's something inherently problematic about it is I think not sustainable. And similarly with um, you know china 's claimed when it comes to the larger international and regional institutions to be uh, much more of a rule maker than just a rule taker. These are perfectly defensible and legitimate claims, and China has been uh, treated with um, you know something less than respect in this case. Um, not just by Trump, but uh, but you know Obama and 2016 State of the Union. It should be remembered that Obama said, in the context of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, "We make the rules," quote unquote. "We make the rules. China doesn't oh, make the yeah. rules. We make the rules." So there's been this incredible insensitivity about you know, creating a proper place and space for China and it's perfectly understandable that you know China should want to uh, you know, be pushing the limits in a number of ways but that said uh, you know there is such a thing as overreach and we've been seeing that overreach we've seen it in the south china sea We've seen it perhaps in in a a larger bundle of kinds of behavior by China, which are are consistent with the notion that it really does want to restore that hegemony role, that tributary state set of relationships that it had in the distant past, where everybody else kowtowed to the Middle Kingdom and acknowledged the supremacy without formal annexure of land or territory, nonetheless creating that kind of environment. There's a huge amount of um, Chinese commercial endeavour and cash flows into a number of the, the regions, not just Philippines that you mentioned, but um, Cambodia and... Um, Pakistan and, and Laos. Australia. But I mean, Southeast Asia, Cambodia oh, and Laos sure, are yeah. effectively wholly owned subsidiaries of China at the moment. Malaysia was heading in that direction. Hopefully that's uh, now reversed with the recent democratic developments there. Thailand is another case, which is... Uh, Hugely under Chinese influence, mm. and then of course, as you as you look further afield across the, the Belt and Road, across the Asian landmass, you know, I mean, Pakistan is extraordinarily dependent on China. Iran, interestingly, is becoming much more uh, dependent mm. on China as a. A way of coping with the uh, the pressures, the zits now under with the with the United States walking away from the uh, the JCPOA, the the Iran nuclear agreement, and insisting on the imposition of sanctions and embargoes on oil uh, sales and so on. So in all these ways, I mean, China is um, is filling space and exercising influence. But you know that's life up to a point, um, mm-hmm. and the rest of us have to uh, accommodate that. And in particular, the United States, I think when it finally gets its act together and, and develops a coherent approach to all of this, which is lacking at the moment, will, I think, you know, recognize that what it has to do is stop claiming dominance, predominance, primacy in the region. It's just not credible any longer. And it has to work uh, with China that's a, a genuine competitor. But, you know, the, the skill in all of this is to find cooperative rather than confrontational solutions
0: to all these issues. And... That really is doable. From a completely self-centred perspective then, how concerned should Australia be about the rise of China and even uh, the attempts at influences that you see in Australia today?
1: Well, I don't think we should overstate the extent of Chinese interference in Australia. Yes, they're trying to exercise influence in all sorts of ways, but that's not unusual for other countries. And there are things which are acceptable and things which are unacceptable, interference directly in electoral process or... You know, trying to suborn politicians to adopt a China line was manifestly unacceptable. Mm. Investment in strategically sensitive infrastructure is something that um, most countries, uh, not just us, I think we're in- entitled to be a bit defensive about that and to set constraints and limits. But um, we shouldn't get too spooked by what's going on. A lot of, the, lot of the stuff about you know, alleged Chinese influence in universities, I haven't seen the evidence for that, which would be remotely enough to justify some of the, uh, the squeaks and squawks we've been seeing from the Murdoch and uh, other press uh, in particular. All of that said, I mean, you do have to look at the larger geopolitical power balances. You have to look at the, the trends. You have to look... Not at intent, but at capability you know, when you're planning your own military defence and you're working out how much you can trust your alliance relationships, how much you've got to do for yourself. And I think Australia's reaction to all of these developments can be summarised as I've been saying a lot recently in, in three short phrases less the United States, more self reliance, more Asia. Mm. Less the United States doesn't mean walking away from the alliance from which we've benefited enormously over the years in terms of intelligence, logistic support, equipment, supply, interoperability and the broad notion, I suppose, that America is is there as as a deterrent should anything really ugly emerge in the region. But we can no longer assume that that alliance relationship means whatever it once might have meant. It's obvious that Trump uh, doesn't give a fig for alliance relationships, he just doesn't think in those terms, it's America first. And uh, it's not obvious to me that um, that trend could be reversed, even if Trump's own tenure is uh, you know, reasonably short-lived and life moves back to some normality in America, I think you know, the days are gone when we can rely absolutely on any big protector. Okay. So we've got to do more for ourselves, and that does mean uh, more and more intelligence defense uh, spending. In particular, however, it means what I call more Asia, which is more much closer relationships um, with the key players in the region.
0: Maybe less phone hacking and that sort uh, of thing. Well, yeah, I
1: mean, to, to do insanely... Counterproductive things yeah. like bugging the telephone of the um, Indonesian president and his wife, or you know, on a smaller scale but equally insane, you know, bugging the um, cabinet room of East Timor to improve your position with negotiation. Not the sort of thing that wins hearts and minds around the region. Mm. But the relationship with Indonesia is incredibly important. It's incredibly important that we develop the relationship with India, which has uh, long had an enormous amount of potential but not much delivery. It's important that we develop close relationship with Vietnam which has its own um, interest to protect and is a big strong country in the context of you know counterweight to possible other trends in the region it's obviously important that we continue our relationship with Japan and South Korea so more asia in the sense that not necessarily formal alliances or you know sort of overtly uh, trying to create deterrent military capability, but just more diplomacy and more understanding of mutual interests and greater development of cooperative strategies and maritime surveillance, disaster relief, and all those things which can stand you in good stead for the long haul and when the tectonic plates are shifting in the way that they are. More Asia also means uh, developing with China itself i think um, a much more multidimensional relationship than we have at the moment and um, we have tended to think in terms of you know china's all about economics america's all about security and try to avoid a zero sum game developing between those two has has been the the storyline but there's much more can be done in terms of australia developing a relationship with china which is sort of mutually productive and which is not just locked into that uh, that single economic track. I mean, there's a whole legion of global issues, transnational issues, global public goods issues, what I call good international citizenship issues, where Australia could really find a huge amount of common ground with China. I mean, the climate issue is an obvious one, uh, dealing with health pandemics and development issues arms control, nuclear disarmament. I mean, China's um, never been an enthusiastic nuclear weapons state. It's mm. minimal numbers of weapons compared with certainly Russia and the United States. It's always um, you know, insisted on no first use and has been a potentially serious player in global arms control, which are, you know Australia has been an important contributor to that debate on many occasions over the last few decades. And uh, this common ground to be forged there, uh, working in United Nations context with a number of other issues, um, on trade issues, of course, back into the economic zone, but being a, a voice for genuinely liberal trade in an environment where the United States is going in the other direction. All these are areas where we can develop, I think, a much more multi-dimensional and uh, much more cooperative relationship with China, the, the notion that China's... Um, not interested at all in the global order, rules-based order, or playing a constructive role in multilateral institutions, I think is, is just plain wrong. It's shown a willingness to play a leadership role in climate issue, in yes, particular when the United yeah. States abdicated that space, maybe there was an element of cynical opportunism about that. Maybe there was an element of cynical opportunism about Xi Jinping proclaiming himself to be a you know advocate of global free trade at Davos a couple of years ago when America started backsliding on that front. But for all the skepticism and all the cynicism, I think we also ought to take seriously China's claims to be a, a, just a serious player on the world stage. and.
0: Uh, it's time that the Americans and uh, a
1: lot of other people have accommodated themselves to that
0: reality. Mm. Where do you see the role of uh, ASEAN being then in the region? Because the intention of ASEAN, at least, is something that I see the Asian region as being in need of, except it might not live up to its intentions. Well, ASEAN's right?
1: played you know, a tremendous role in bringing a degree of significant peace and harmony, basically, to a region which conspicuously lacked it before ASEAN was formed and first in the 60s. I mean, it's been uh, you know, hugely successful as a vehicle for calming internal disputes, difficulties, which in the past have all too often created off into, into conflict. So at that level, ASEAN has worked and it continues to work. But, of course, the hope was ASEAN would become a major player in the development of good policy in both economic and security and in wider transnational issue terms across a broad front. And ASEAN itself wanted to play that sort of central role. ASEAN centrality has been the mantra chanted by ASEAN countries for a long time now. Mm. And, um, And that was the case that ASEAN was positioning itself in that way at the time of the creation of APEC, the creation of the ASEAN Regional Forum and, you know, more recently, I suppose, the East Asian Summit and so on. But ASEAN has been visibly losing a lot of its coherence and credibility, partly because of um, real concerns about um, human rights and democracy violations, in a number of countries. I mean, ASEAN has never been a paradigm of democratic human rights respecting behavior in the past. But I mean, Duterte in the Philippines, what's happening with Rohingya in Myanmar, the soft authoritarianism, which is um, visible in a number of other countries, including Singapore, uh, the general's coup and maintenance of authoritarian rule in, in Thailand, you know, the emergence of significant anxiety about Islamist conservatism and and the human rights implications of that in Indonesia. I mean, all these things are... Credibility problems? Potentially trashing the ASEAN brand Mm. and ASEAN's countries I think have got to be a lot more conscious of how they're presenting themselves internationally. I just think there's there's less respect and less credibility for ASEAN than there used to be. And that's a worry because um, I've always been a huge supporter of Australia's relationship with ASEAN, as ASEAN, not just its individual member countries. Mm-hmm. While I've always thought that um, formal membership of ASEAN was a pretty quixotic and romantic aspiration, which um, would probably uh, have no more buyers in um, the ASEAN countries than it's likely to have in the Australian public nonetheless there's a huge amount to be said for some closer form of associate membership and you know some much greater integration of, uh, of policy approaches in this new environment but that's that's getting harder and harder to do I mean China's influence over a number of the ASEAN countries is uh, is really uh, pretty extreme at the moment. And we're seeing an inability to get consensus on issues like responses to um, South China Sea issues and so on. So that's essentially
0: it, buying votes. Yeah, it's
1: that's that's the way life works, I guess. Yeah. If you're exercising a huge amount of... Um, financial muscle and um, creating financial dependency in countries, it gets very difficult for them to uh, stand up against you when you um, when you push the limits a little bit unacceptably elsewhere. And we've seen that dynamic at work. So I think uh, probably you know, while we've got to work hard to maintain the best possible relationship with ASEAN as an institution that we can, and uh, we'll work with it in all sorts of ways, I think realistically uh, for the future, we've got to put most of our eggs in the basket of building relations with individual key ASEAN countries. Sure. Pre- yeah. Predominantly among them Indonesia and Vietnam. Yes, the traditional partners, Singapore and Malaysia as well, but, but Indonesia and Vietnam are, th- are the big boys in the ASEAN block, and they really are capable of being significant players in their own right in this wider region and operating as a as a natural kind of balance to what might otherwise be an imbalance with the growing rise and assertiveness of
0: Chinese power. Yeah, so is that essentially on your uh, less America, more Asia, more self-reliance cheat sheet?
1: Yeah, well that's very much so.
0: Yeah. As I said, more Asia does
1: mean above all developing closer relationships with that group of middle power plus uh, countries all the way from um, India around through Indonesia, Vietnam up to South Korea and uh, and Japan. They're the key countries um, with which we really do need to develop very, very close working relationships um, in the future.
0: Thank you very much for being the guest today in our 100th episode of the Asia Rising podcast. Allow me to present you with the ceremonial Asia Rising coffee mug. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, thanks, Matt. Great to talk to you. Oh, there it is. They're very,
0: they're very limited edition now. <laughs>
1: Asia Rising, Latrobe, right in the middle of the action, as we expect it to be.
0: You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and please leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.